Welcome to Primer, a podcast that gets you closer to the heart of the matter. As you may know, the Primer is a small cap at the base of ammunition that when struck by a firing pin goes BAM. It ignites the gunpowder and sends the bullet downrange. The point of the podcast is like that, to get you going in the right direction quickly by briefly tackling a variety of subjects like books, people, events, issues, whatever. After listening, if you want to take it further, you can. Episodes and more information can be found at personalprimer.com. All right. Hello and welcome to this week's episode um, of Primer Plus. We're talking about The Splendid and the Vile. It's a book by Eric Larson, and I'm joined today by Mr. Jerry Lenneberg. My name is Melissa Ryle. I'm a contributor for Personal Primer Podcast. Uh, Mr. Jerry Lenneberg is a project manager and senior military analyst with over 30 years experience in the defense and intelligence community, where he's written extensively on military and national security topics relating to both conventional and unconventional warfare. And in 1987, he graduated um, with, from the U.S. Naval Academy with a B.S. in history, where he was a member of Phi Alpha Theta. And he also holds an MS in technology management and an MA in military studies. Uh, he's known on the world of Instagram as the grouchy historian um, and just a wealth of knowledge. So Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me to be here. Yeah. So first of all, I know you said you hadn't heard about the book. I said, Jerry, can you read this book and we'll talk about it. So what's your, what's your first take on the book? Um, it was it was great. No, I, I probably never would have uh, picked up this book if you hadn't recommended it and said, "Hey, can you read this book and we'll talk about it." Um, but uh, it was it was really good. It was I I finished it in about three days. Um, it's it's kind of one of those um, unique history books. It's an actual page turner, um, and uh, it you really learn a lot of interesting little quirks about Winston Churchill yeah. and his family in this book, which is, which is what it's about. But it's really, um, I think, um, also an interesting leadership study mm -hmm. um, uh, for uh, people who want to know how to handle probably the biggest crisis that Western civilization has ever faced. So uh, it was a great book. Yes, yes. And for those who you know haven't read it, um, you know, you can pick it up. Um, but it's important to know it is nonfiction. So it's not just, you know, somebody's fictionalized idea. A lot of research. It kind of reads like fiction. It but does. It's the real deal. Yeah. So, yeah. So definitely everything is super accurate. So um, this book's described as a saga of Churchill family and defiance during the Blitz. So just to kick things off, can you tell us about the Blitz and how this particular moment in history sets the tone for Great Britain and really the world going forward? Right. So when you recommended the book and I started reading it, um, something came to mind that I've uh, maintained for a long time, which is you look at those, you know, key people in history, right? That were sort of the, the ultimate man in the ultimate place in the ultimate time. And uh, in my opinion, um, Winston Churchill is probably um, the most critical person of the 20th century. And I'll ex explain why. I think he was, you know, like George Washington, nobody could be George Washington, nobody could be Winston Churchill. So the, uh, the book kind of starts out um, right before, I mean, right after World War II has started, but before 
the beginning of, of the German campaign in 1940. So Winston Churchill um, was an has been an interesting character all his life. <laughs> so Winston Churchill um, at the beginning of World War II is the first Lord of the Admiralty. So he's basically kind of like the, the Secretary of the Navy, right? He had a very long relationship with the Royal Navy. So he's in the British government, but he's not the prime minister. Churchill throughout all of the 30s had been warning Britain of uh, the dangers of Nazi Germany and Hitler, and they didn't listen to him. Uh, they spent most of the 30s trying to appease Hitler up until the point that Hitler invaded Poland in 1939. So in 1940, everybody's waiting to see what Hitler's going to do. They expect he's going to invade France, um, and they're, they're, they're waiting, they're anticipating. When Hitler invades France, the day that he invades France, the government of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain falls, suffers a vote of no confidence. And this is one of those key moments in history, right? So the king in the British government, right? The, uh, the, the king asks a member of parliament to form a government, right? To in effect become the prime minister. So at this key moment in history, Winston Churchill wasn't the first choice. No. Everybody thought he was sort of brash uh, he was impetuous, all very true. Um, and they thought he was kind of a dilettante to a certain extent too. Everybody in, in, in the government, everybody that was in the know um, expected that um, the king would have asked Lord Halifax to form a government. Interestingly enough though, Chamberlain recommends Churchill to him, which is interesting because Churchill was not a fan of Chamberlain. The king asked Churchill to form a government the day the Nazi, like I said, the day the Nazis start their invasion of Western Europe. Churchill pretty much says, I've been waiting for this my entire life. This my entire life, everything he's done, and if you've ever read his bio, it's amazing the guy lived to be as old as he was. I mean, he pretty much, you know, any he was he was like, you know, it was that guy, Anthony Bourdain, and you know, all of these crazy traveler adventures before there were crazy travelers adventures, right? So the king asked him to form a government. The British establishment, again, was very divided on this. Some of them, it's like, great, Winston's just a man. Other people's like, Churchill, he's a nut. <laughs> so the Germans kind of defy everyone's expectations and crush the French in six weeks. Everybody expected World War II to be like World War I, only worse, right? And the Germans, because of the new technologies of the tank and the airplane, um, accomplish in six weeks what, what they couldn't do in four years in World War I. They drive the British from the continent. They basically overrun the French army and force an armistice uh, with France in June of 1940. So at this point, we see what begins the Battle of Britain, right? This is the, it, Hitler is basically the master of Western Europe. He's overrun Norway, Denmark, Belgium, France, Holland, um, Italy is his ally. He's basically invaded everything except Switzerland and Spain and conquered it all. So the British, of course, are holding out on their own. This is where Churchill's um, uh, effect as the most important person of the 20th century comes into play because Hit Churchill refuses to even think of negotiating with Hitler. There was, in fact, a pretty um, sizable portion of the British government that says, holy cow, Hitler 
is unstoppable. The Nazi war machine is invincible. They're coming for us. Maybe we make a deal now to preserve the empire. Churchill had none of that. He's like, Hitler is evil. Nazism is evil. Britain is going to stand fast. So the problem is, um, and of course, Hitler sees these stubborn Englishmen over there across the English Channel, and he, he wants to settle the war. Well, okay, so he's got to get the German army across the English Channel. Well, of course, this hasn't been done since 1066, right? Nobody has invaded England. The Germans then decide they're going to launch an air campaign. This is um, kind of the meat of the book here, is Churchill anticipates that this is what's going to happen. The Germans have to defeat the Royal Air Force in order to be able to invade Britain. And early on, you kind of see Ru Churchill had a pretty ruthless streak too, right? He didn't mess around. As soon as he knew that, he, as soon as he could tell that the French were, were defeated and had basically given up, he, um, there was a request late in the campaign to send several dozen squadrons of fighters to help out the French campaign. And Churchill kept them back because he knew the French were beaten um, but he was going to need those fighters to defend England. Um, the interesting part about the book is it takes a couple of sideshows that I actually uh, was not all that familiar with. The, the technical part of the battle, the, the techno wizards, they called it, right? The German navigation uh, beams that allowed them to attack Britain. Um, yeah, back then, because this is how some of us way back in the day still learned how to navigate airplanes. Um, navigation was not a very precise art, right? There was no GPS. Um, it was all basically dead reckoning. You had, a, you had an airspeed indicator, you had a watch, you had a map, and you had a compass. And that, you know, if you dropped bombs on England, that was pretty good. You know, that was your target. Yeah. Um, but the Germans, of course, had a much more sophisticated system. And of course, the British had radars. So you see the first sort of technical battle of, of in, in history in the Battle of Britain. But more importantly, um, Churchill had, um, I think, a way uh, that you don't see in too many politicians these days of inspiring people. And that came through the book, too, right? Churchill was full of ideas, right? He actually used to drive, you got this from the book, used to drive his staff, his military officers, his cabinet secretary with these great ideas. He had lots of ideas. He was a man of action, didn't like bureaucracy, kind of drove him crazy. Oh, he had so many secretaries. So many, se yeah. Now oh. this, this was classic Winston Churchill, right? The best part of this book for me is you see Churchill as a person and he had more quirks. I mean, come on. The guy, first of all, let's be honest, the guy drank like a fish. Yes. I mean, the guy woke up, had brandy for breakfast, champagne for lunch, champagne for dinner, more brandy for dinner. He smoked like a chimney. Mm -hmm. He took two right. baths a day and he had right. people recording all the time. Like right. So imagine this, that, you know, Winston Churchill gets out of his bathtub, buck naked, puts on a bathrobe, which we hope he ties, but he didn't go into that detail, and like wanders around the bedroom dictating to his secretary, probably with a drink and a cigar. Okay, the yeah. other thing that cracked me up, yes, it did, was that he wore pink silk underwear. And I'm like, okay, I really didn't need to know that detail, but okay, 
The guy saved Western civilization. If he wants to wear pink silk underwear, have at it. All right. <laughs> um, but he, he, he never ever lost confidence that Britain could beat the Germans. And when, the, when, the, when the, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force starts their air campaign, um, you know, all the really smart people, all the experts are like, yeah, the, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna last. The Germans are gonna overrun us. Um, you know, they prepared for invasion. They anticipated that, you know, they did their calculations, right? Because, you know, you have to have weather and tides and moons and all these to launch the So they knew that the optimum time for the Germans to invade would have been September before winter sets in, right? Because the English Channel in winter, no bueno. So you had this fairly narrow window that the Germans had to win the battle in order to invade England before the end of 1940. And, you know, didn't, didn't take a lot of, you know, you could figure that out. Um, so yeah, the battle was very desperate. Um, the, the couple of things that Churchill did that you see in the book is he, he got Lord Beaverbrook. Oh my gosh. And one of those characters, right? <laughs> if you, you know, read the guys like perpetual whiner. Yes. <laughs> but again, he was the perfect man at the perfect place to increase Britain's aircraft production. And that's what it's, it was a numbers game. You had to produce pilots and you had to produce airplanes. And, um, you know, Churchill could conjole, wheedle, embarrass, shame, whatever it took to keep the right people in the right job, right? So the, uh, between radar and aircraft production and, you know, a lot of um, uh, determination from Hitler, the, the British withstand the first round of, of air attacks. And then if you read the book, um, you find that um, almost by mistake, you know, the Germans, again, bombing a target, go off course and bomb London, which of course Churchill has none of this and sends the, the RAF to bomb Berlin. So now you get into sort of the, uh, um, you know, manly contest between Hitler and Churchill uh, bombing each other's cities. And now this is when you really get the blitz that the, the book kind of adds in the title here, is the Germans now switch to a campaign, not necessarily to defeat the RAF, but to try to bomb Britain into submission, to bomb them to the negotiating table. And um, the book goes into a really great detail here, which um, I thought was uh, uh, something that, that I don't think we think about today in you know 21st century America is how much the civilians in London and these other cities endured and carried on right they they talk about how you know there was shortage of electricity and gas and of course because of the u-boats off of England there were food shortages and rationing and and you know clothing shortages and you know you think it was bad during the pandemic when they didn't have toilet paper right yeah. So um, you get a sense of the, um, the sort of courage that the entire British people had to stand up to, to the German bombing. And all of this was sort of epitomized by Churchill. They have a couple of his really, uh, some of his finest speeches um, in the book, right? The, uh, you know, never give up, never surrender, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them on the hill. And then probably his most famous speech uh, when he talks about, you know, never have so, so, 
never was so much owed by so few or so many to so few talking about um, the RAF fighter pilots. So um, as winter comes, you know, Hitler, um, the, the Germans clearly don't have the air superiority that they need to launch the invasion, uh, which I don't, you know, there's a lot of speculation about whether they were really serious about it either because they had no Navy. So, you know, how they could have actually gotten a sufficient force across the English Channel in the face of the Royal Navy, which at the time was still, yeah, probably still the world's mightiest Navy for a while till the US came in the war. <laughs> yeah. um, even with air superiority, it would have been, it would have been tough. I mean, they might've been able to hold off the Royal Navy, but you know, amphibious operations are some of the most challenging operation. I mean, you look at the allies, the allies spent almost three, three full years and definitely a full year and a half getting ready to invade Normandy. And they had, you know, total air supremacy, total maritime supremacy, you know, mountains of supplies, troops, landing craft, you know, the Germans would have been trying to invade Britain on a shoestring. And, um, but the, the bombing of England was still, you know, you look at the numbers of people that were killed and the, just the destruction of London and some of the other cities. If you, you know, read the chapter of Coventry in particular, I mean, you know, the idea that you wanted to literally just bomb a city off the map is, is, I think a lot of people just couldn't really process that these days, that you deliberately planned to wipe out a city for the sheer terror bombing of people. Um, but that's what Churchill did. Um, again, the other part of the interesting part of the book is, yeah, his family was also a hot mess, for, <laughs> you know, um, you, you find that, uh, I, you know, oftentimes that's, that's true for, for political leaders, um, that their families are a hot mess, mostly because they're spending most of their time, uh, doing politics. Um, his wife was, uh, was very supportive. Oh, yes, I, you know, I think that kind of came through the book. She did have a mind of her own and, uh, she didn't always put up with his guff, no. but, um, I, I it kind of came through to me that she knew the weight that he had on his shoulders, right? Because there was still a lot of times, was particularly early on in the Blitz, that people are like, why are, we, why, why, don't, why are we putting up with this? Why don't we just make a deal with Hitler? And, um, you know, particularly after um, there looked like the, uh, you know, the um, things were gonna heat up in the Mediterranean and, um, Obviously, things were not going well with the French. Again, if you look at how ruthless Churchill was, um, the fact that he actually opened fire on his former allies to keep what he felt was, was the fear of their navy falling into German hands, um, he, he, he didn't mess around, you know? Uh, the other thing that sort of comes through here is you see that Churchill's one great desire, his one great hope was to get America into the war, right? And he started this almost from the beginning with oh. Roosevelt. And you, you can kind of see the little kabuki dance um, that the two of them did because Roosevelt wanted to get in the war, but he couldn't. But he knew that we had to support Britain as much as we could. Um, the, the deal to swap the destroyers for bases um, was um, 
a real masterpiece of, of uh, covert diplomacy there. Um, and again, I think he makes a good point. The destroyers really weren't the point. The point was that the Americans were getting involved. And um, there's a story that said uh, when Churchill heard about um, Pearl Harbor getting bombed, the night that he heard about Pearl Harbor getting bombed and that, uh, and that the US was going to get involved in the war city, he went to sleep and he slept the sleep of the just because he knew that the war was won at that moment. So, um, so the Churchill's leadership, his, um, his steadfast and his goal, his absolutely unshakable determination to defeat Hitler, no matter how long it took or what the cost. Um, you know, if you look at it at the time for a critical year and a half until the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, uh, England literally stood as the sole protector of Western civilization, right? Again, that's one of, of his famous speeches, right? If Hitler had not gone into power and say Lord Halifax had formed the government and had decided to make a peace with Hitler, um, our world would look very, very different today, which is why I think, uh, you know, again, in my opinion, he was the indispensable man of the 20th century. Yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of leads into, you know, kind of a, a follow-up question there, um, you know, from your studies and of you know, the war of Britain and military strategy and, um, you know, what are your personal thoughts on Churchill's response and how he handled that um, in inspiring and trying to <laughs> uphold, um, you know, the, the British people while waiting for help? Yeah, it was, uh, he did it, he did it really well. Um, again, the, the, uh, um, he, he was not, he, he had a, he had a propensity to put out lots of crazy ideas, but he wasn't a micromanager, right? So the RAF generals and air, air marshals, sorry, they would be marshals and air marshals that were running the campaign um, he, he basically did his best to give them the resources and let them do the job, right? Um, now, I, again, a lot of people think that he, you know, had a lot of crazy ideas, but he was very, he loved gadgets too, right? So the, the, the mad scientists that he had working on with him to try to defeat the German <laughs> navigation beams. I mean, this is pure Churchill. Churchill's like, anything that helps me defeat Hitler, bring it, bring it to me. I want it. I don't care how crazy the idea is. You know, I don't care whose toes you have to step on. If this is going to help us defeat Hitler, bring it to me. Um, he again, he would cut through the bureaucracy, sometimes to their dismay, um, to get his way. They don't uh, they don't talk about it a whole lot in the book here, but of course, Church, one of Churchill's the other things he did very early on was form commandos, and basically uh, the British uh, they called it the Special Operations Executive. Um, to start striking back at the, at the Germans as soon as possible. Yeah. You know, he knew that because his army, you know, their army had barely escaped from the continent and had to leave behind, you know, all of their tanks, trucks, artillery, heavy equipment. I mean, they basically got back to Britain with the clothes on their backs. And if they were lucky, their rifles, but in some cases, not even that. So there was no way that they were gonna, you know, invade France in, you know, for the next four years. But he had a very, he knew it was important psychologically to strike back at the Germans, which is why he sent, 
you know, the RAF bombers back into Germany as soon as possible. And he, um, he never lost faith in the military. Hey, I lost you for a second. You were talking about 10 Downing Street. Sorry, uh, had a little unstable internet. Um, he's, he, you know, he stayed at 10 Downing Street, right? They know said how he went to Checkers on the weekend, yep. right? And he did a lot of business at Checkers, right? Because, you know, that's how you do business at that stage of government over cigars, brandy, and, you know, in the country. But he, he, he was at 10 Downing Street and, you know, it got bombed during, you know, some of the air raids. So did Buckingham Palace, right? Um, so he, he had the right people, he gave them the right tools, he didn't micromanage, but he pushed. He pushed them to strike back at the Germans, to in, you know, increase aircraft production, to you know, get back in the war. Most importantly, and I, he goes into this in a great deal, he did this not just because Britain needed to do it, but he did it to prove that Britain was staying in the war, right? There was this you know, undercurrent in the United States that you know, the British are gonna lose, why are we putting all this money in there? You know, they're not going to hold out. They're not going to win. And Churchill was also very politically astute. And he knew that he had to convince the Americans that A, they could win and B, that they would do whatever it takes to, to do so. Um, and he did that really, really well. Again, he was very ruthless when he had to be. Um, and he was also a great diplomat when he had to be. To, uh, to, to, to keep Britain in the war and to keep America uh, moving toward supporting them and being an ally. Yeah. So along those lines then, um, you know, we've been talking about Winston Churchill and you know, he's somebody that um, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, I think comes across just with like a legend, you know, because of just how how intense he was. He was larger than life. Yeah. So truly one of those people that was larger than life. And I think, you know, like great, a lot, a lot of great politicians, he knew it. He knew how to be a showman, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're a, a, a wartime prime minister, it's not just what you do. It's, it's how you act and how you appear and sort of that aura you put off that, uh, you know, everything's okay, we're in control. Yep, this is tough. You know, clearly bombs are falling on our heads, but uh, we can take it, right? We can take it. We're gonna try to carry on with our lives as best we can. Uh, you know, people went to work, they went to work in the factories. You know, they evacuated the kids out to the country. Um, so there is, there's a, you know, a, you could see it today, right? Politics is about, eh, 49% showmanship and about 51% actual governance. Yeah. Right? I mean, he would have been awesome on Instagram. Can you imagine Winston <laughs> I mean, think about it. People would be, you know, his friends just to find out what brandy he drank and what cigars he smoked. Seriously? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. the ask me anything. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Looking, yeah, I mean, even looking at the beginning of the, you know, towards the beginning of, of the book when they're talking about how he kept... Um, just large weaponry in the back of his car and you know a pistol on back to pistol exactly yeah he's like you know what if i'm if they're gonna come get me like i'm taking some of them with me and just and he would have there is no doubt if you yeah. read I, I started reading a really good biography about him i mean he was he was captured during the boer war tried to escape i don't know a couple three times before he succeeded he was in a cavalry charge in 
either the Sudan or the, 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 the Northwest, in Indian Northwest, I can't remember what it was. He commanded a battalion in World War I for a little while. I mean, the guy was just, he, I think today we would have called him an adrenaline junkie. Yes. You know, if there was an adventure to be had, he would go try to have it. He was a war correspondent, he was a soldier, um, you know, he was a politician for a long time. He was first Lord of the Admiralty twice before he was prime minister. I mean, the guy led just an amazing um, life. And, and again, all of his experiences up to May of 1940 led him, I believe, to that moment. Yeah. And I, I mean, going back to something you said towards the beginning as well, that he just, he embraced it. Like he knew that that's what he was made for. And he's like, yes, like we're going to do this. And it was- Oh, awesome. he was excited to be prime minister. He's like, I, you know, my favorite saying quote, I was born to do this. That's, yes. that you, you get that sense from him that he knew that this was his time because, you know, again, he had been warning Britain about Hitler for years and everybody ignored him and said he was a warmonger and blah, blah, blah. And now here he was- to save England, which yes. he did. Yeah. And, you know, going back to, to something else, um, uh, Beaverton, he, Beaverbrook, Beaverbrook wow. Whew. Beaverbrook, um, he was, a, he was a newspaper man. Yep. And Churchill put in charge of building up airplanes. Yep. In our, he was a pirate. I mean, I mean, you know, he was like one of those, those, he was like, he, he kind of, if I was to find a modern equivalent, I think of like Richard Branson, right? You know, Richard Branson, Virgin Atlantic, yeah. Virgin Records. I mean, the guy just kind of looks like a pirate and he was, right? Remember there's that part of the book where Beaverbrook was basically running around cannibalizing aircraft parts to the chagrin of, you know, the RAF leadership and others. And he's like, I don't care. I got to get aircraft in the air. I'm going to go pick up airplanes, air, air, you know, crashed planes, derelict planes, whatever it takes. You know, he didn't care. He wasn't an airplane guy. He was a guy that got stuff done because he ran uh, a media empire back in the days when yeah, that was that was heavy duty blue collar work. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So he he got things done. Yeah, it was uh, I, I was. I mean, I heard of Lord Bieberbrook. I didn't really get all, all of his background story, but when you, yeah, you see what he got done with with the air, aircraft production. It's just like, yeah, guy knew how to get stuff done, you know. And he, and and um, again, he was kind of ruthless about, you know, keeping his factories open, keeping his workers on the production line, and uh, you know, getting the the raw materials and everything to to put aircraft in the air and. If you uh, if you study if you if you look at a, a, an analysis of the battle from both sides, the Germans figured they'd wiped out the RAF twice, and they just kept coming back. And they're like, "Where are these guys getting all these airplanes?" Well, because Beaverbrook was making sure that if a plane got back to England in any sort of shape, there was a good chance that either it went back to flying or it provided parts to other planes to do so, which was the advantage, as they say, of flying over your home turf. If a pilot, if an RAF pilot got, uh, you know, had to bail out and survived, chances are he could get back into action. If the airplane could make it back, chances are it could get back into action. The Germans didn't have that advantage. So uh, I know they talk about um, 
his daughter going to the, the bomber in the field or whatever that, that particular chapter was, mm -hmm. right? So um, yeah, that was, that was one of the uh, uh, many examples of the sort of characters that, that Churchill just kind of drew to him because he, knew, he, he had this uh, ability to figure out that that's the guy for that job. And everybody's like, he's a newspaper man. Yeah. But Churchill's like, that's the guy for that job because A, he can come straight to me and B, he doesn't care about the process or the bureaucracy. He's just going to get airplanes built and in the air. Yeah, it was incredible. So don't see a lot of that these days in government. No, you don't. Just saying. <laughs> so why do you think he is a historical figure worth knowing? Um, well, again, he, um, um, he literally stood alone against Hitler and he um, kept Britain in the war. Um, I think he's a, a figure worth studying because he's, he's, he's a definite study in contrasts, right? I mean, again, you know, the guy had, had a lot of quirks and um, he, uh, he had a big personality. Um, but I think if you look at someone who shows, who shows how to exhibit steady leadership under extreme pressure, how to um, exhibit sort of this uh, uh, determination to reach a goal. And, uh, you know, not that he's, you know, not without controversy. Again, he had been fired as first sea lord during World War I um, because he, he was the proponent of the, the British uh, debacle at Gallipoli in Turkey, right? So, you know, he had his, he had his ups and downs and obviously not all his ideas worked out well. Um, but um, he knew, he knew what was, he, he was, he was very prophetic when it came to Hitler. He knew that Hitler was evil and was not going to be appeased and that you couldn't handle Hitler diplomatically. You had to prepare for war and you had to be ready to push back against Hitler. So I think he had a very finely tuned sense of um, uh, what I want to call it, sort of moral geopolitics. Um, and he, um, I just think he's a, he's a fascinating character because he, he, like I said, he was the indispensable man uh, during World War II. Yes. So this book, you know, in addition to talking about Churchill and, you know, his leadership, um, you know, focuses a lot on his family. So, you know, we touched on that a little bit towards the beginning. So what impact do you think his family had on him and his response to Hitler and the Blitz? That's an interesting, oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I so the couple of things that stood out about his family, his, his son was kind of uh, what I would call sort of your, your typical child of privilege. Yeah. <laughs> it just becomes, uh, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but kind of a wastrel. I mean, he's a gambler, he's a womanizer. Um, I mean, holy cow. I mean, Lots you, you read about how much gambling debts he got into. Yeah. And, you know, that's another interesting thing about Churchill, right? The guy was, 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 you know, pretty much broke when the war began, right? And uh, so he wasn't like, you know, a wealthy man of privilege. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't part of the nobility. He was, 
his his father was so he probably had some title in there somewhere but he didn't he was not like the landed gentry you know (laughs) you know he would not have been at Downton Abbey or anything like that um so yeah I think uh the impression I got from the book was um his uh uh his wife and his daughter or his daughter-in-law tried to kind of shield him as much as they could from his son's issues um and um you know at some point um you know as as you read in the book his his son's wife before she decided to leave him you know basically went to lord beaverbrook to help settle the gambling debts which you know it's kind of one of those insider deals that you you know never typically ends well what I thought was interesting was his daughter, Mary, who was just sort of like the Paris Hilton of of, of the Battle of Britain. I oh mean, my goodness, yes. She just sort of partied. I'm like, I'm like when your biggest concern is which nightclub in London to go to, yeah, hmm. Um, but, you know, his wife, of course, was the, the, the quintessential political hostess, right? When oh, people yes. came to Checkers, she made sure things were done. You, I don't know if you noticed, but this was, and if you ever watched Downton Abbey, right? As soon as dinner is done, the women get up and leave, right? And the men get out the cigars and brandy and talk business or politics or both or war, whatever. Um, I thought that was, uh, that, was, that was interesting, right? So she had her things. He had his things. She was the, you know, the hostess, politician's wife, and then she got up and left. Yeah, you know. She also seemed to have no filter. Like no, again, she didn't put up with his guff. Um, she, she, but she was again, she was a very strong woman in that she tried to handle things domestically so that he didn't have to. Because I'm not honestly sure that he would have been all that good at it, because mm-hmm. he spent most of his life in politics. Um, I kind of got the impression. I mean, they doted on Mary, clearly. Yeah. You know, she was the favorite child. Um, they did take care of their older daughter. Um, I think I think if if you'd, you know, read a genuine biography, which I have a couple on the shelf, I, I think he probably would have been disappointed in his son. You know, I think his son had a lot of potential that he just kind of threw away. Um, and um but you know, like everybody else in England, you know, they made they tried to make sure their children were safe during the Blitz. I mean, their son was in the military, but he didn't really go overseas until they decided that maybe you should go to war because that might be better for you. You know, that's never a good sign when they're like, you need to go join a commando unit and get into combat because then you're not gambling and womanizing. Hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they you know were con- as concerned as any other parent was about their children. Um, I mean, eventually, I guess Mary got into the whatever the, the territorial army or whatever it was during the war, and her son was in the service. And um, yeah, so that was um, the other interesting thing was Pamela, which I guess was the older daughter. Mm-hmm. So Pamela, um, or daughter-in-law, I guess daughter-in-law. Mm-hmm. Now I'm confused. Yes. I don't, Daughter-in-law. They got a little, they didn't, yeah, they didn't go a ton into, like. But she ended up, you know, marrying Avril Harriman. You know, they had an affair, mm-hmm. right? So there's always a little scandal, always a little something, something going on underneath. 
um, she had an affair. And then, you know, what was it? 15, 20 years after the war ended up marrying Avril Harriman for yeah. like 15 years until he died. And I'm like, I, I remember a little bit of their story. I thought they were married much longer than that. I didn't know that they both actually stayed married to their spouses after they cheated on them. And then, you know, when their spouses, you know, I'm just like, wow, there's a soap opera for you. So, um, yeah, I, I think like a lot of famous people, his home life was was kind of a dumpster fire, not really, you know, something that I think he wanted to emphasize. Um, but his wife loved him, his wife took care of him, wife probably put him in his place when he needed to, and, um, you know, did, did the best they could during the Blitz like anybody else. Yeah. So kind of closing thoughts, what lessons can leaders draw from how Churchill handled the Blitz? So I think, I think the first thing is, you know, when you're in, well, there's a couple of things. One, when you're in charge, you have to have a single-minded determination of what you want to do, right? Churchill's single-minded determination was he was not going to give in to Hitler. He was not going to quit. He was not going to give up. Eventually he was going to defeat Hitler, mm -hmm. um, no matter what it took, no matter how long. And he set his goals, right? He was going to keep Britain in the war. He was going to draw the Americans into the war one way or the other. Uh, the Japanese kind of helped him there. And, uh, you know, he was going to uh, do whatever it took to defeat Hitler. I think the second thing was you have to inspire people to want to go above and beyond, right? Like Lord Beaverbrook, like resigned like six times or something, right? Like somebody's <laughs> like, I quit, I'm done. Churchill's <laughs> like, no, you're not. Okay, fine. You know, six months later, I quit, I'm done. No, no, you're not, you know. Um, so he knew how to, you know, motivate, cajole, wheedle, shame, whatever it was to keep the right person in the right job. Um, and then he let them do their job, right? He was not a micromanager. He had a lot of crazy ideas, which all bosses tend to do, right? Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, his good ideas were not all that good, but uh, all of his ideas were focused on one thing, which was defeating Hitler. So, you know, single-minded determination, uh, the ability to inspire people, the ability to motivate people, the ability to find the right person, even if you don't, even if it's, you know, a newspaper guy doing aircraft production. Yeah. But clearly Churchill saw something in him that said, this is the guy I want. So, you know, you have to have confidence in your ability to pick the right people, which is a really outstanding skill that I wish I had more of. Um, and then you, you have to, um, um, and, I, and I think at the phrase is correct, you have to have a certain amount of ruthlessness. You know, you have to be willing to do whatever it takes, not necessarily to, you know, sink the Navy of your former ally, but you know, you have to be willing to put in the work and to make hard decisions. I guess that's a better way to say it. You have to make hard decisions that are not always going to be popular, yeah. right? Um, I mean, it was it, it was ugly when they attacked the French fleet, and it had and it had ramifications for the rest of the war. Um, when the Allies invaded North Africa in 1942, they very that was Eisenhower's first big job. The reason was they didn't want to put a British general in charge of it because the French were not too happy with the British at the time. So they had to have an American be in charge of the invasion of North Africa. Hey, we got this guy named Eisenhower. Let's get him to do it. 
And, um, you know, so that was, you know, that was a very tough and controversial decision at the time. If you remember reading the book, the Royal Navy guy was practically in, you know, the Admiral who was ordered to carry out the attack was practically in tears, but he carried it out because Churchill said it's gotta be done, yep. you know? So um, that's what I would, would say. You have to be determined. You have to be willing to make hard decisions, pick the right people, put them in the job, and then let them do the job. Yes. Awesome. And I think for anyone that um, is looking to learn more about the Blitz, obviously, uh, and Churchill, you should read The Splendid in the Vial. Very good. Um, but Jerry, if you have any other recommendations for you know, just biographies on Winston Churchill, we can so, link So um, I have a copy of um there's a couple of good ones um martin gilbert has written a really good one and i i just got a copy of um andrew roberts who's a uh one of my favorite uh british historians as uh, now you know, keep in mind these are about yay thick right you know because i don't read skinny books right <laughs> if, if, it, if it if it's not at least six or eight hundred pages it's like a pamphlet so um but um andrew roberts and martin gilbert uh, have both written really outstanding um, biographies of Winston Churchill. And uh, like I said, he just led an amazing um, adventure filled life. He's like Indiana Jones in pink silk underwear, kind of. <laughs> and that's the quote. There you go. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us, Jerry. And uh, thank you to everyone uh, who listened to this week's Primer Plus episode. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, leave us a five-star review and tell a friend. For more information and to find the episode notes and additional ammunition, go to personalprimer.com. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you.